Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about the facts, the fun and the fiction of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some new stories including a new Alfa Romeo, Nissan updates its big patrol a little bit, two records have been broken recently and BMW's Super Bowl ad stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Greek god Zeus. And in our feature story, the New South Wales Premier has said that there should be less focus on building big transport projects and more focus on facilitating local community activities. We hear from Professor David Hensher, urban planner Mike Day, manager of cycling strategy in the City of Sydney, Fiona Campbell, and Kirsty Kelly, CEO of the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management. You can get more information and links to the social pages at drivenmedia.com.au. Time to start this program. First, the news. Alfa Romeo has announced a new model, the Tonal. It's an SUV 4.5 metres long, which is about 100 millimetres shorter than a Toyota RAV4. Alpha has put out an extensive press release on this, which we struggle to understand at times. For example, they say, quote, In a world exclusive, Tonal is the first car on the market equipped with an NFT, non-fungible token, digital certificate, based on blockchain technology and uniquely linked the Tonal NFT certifies the car upon purchase, then evolves to represent its use during the car's life cycle with major benefits in terms of protecting residual value. I originally thought that non-fungible may have been a fumigating device. It does come with a hybrid and a plug-in hybrid version, which they say offers a true electrified driving experience, which they say has, quote, a brand new 48-volt hybrid propulsion system, specific to Alfa Romeo, which can propel the wheels even when the internal combustion engine is turned off. 48 volts is a development, but running on electric power alone is not exactly new. Two very different driving records have just been set. In Australia, a fairly traditional speed achievement with the Honda Civic Type R setting a new lap record for a front-wheel drive production car around the Bend Motorsport Park. It finished with the best time of a smidgen over 2 minutes and 12 seconds, lowering the previous mark by over 2 seconds. But in an event that typifies the new world and new performance requirements we may cherish from a vehicle, a 2021 Porsche Taycan has officially broken the Guinness World Record for the shortest time spent charging while crossing the United States in an electric vehicle, spending only two and a half hours charging to travel the four and a half thousand kilometre journey. The previous record for the Los Angeles to New York City trip was nearly five hours longer, at seven hours, ten minutes and one second. The charging cost was the equivalent of $106 Australian. The Porsche has a rated range of 410 kilometres, but to fit in with charging availability, sometimes only 50 to 60% of charge was needed. We would like to see a couple of other figures being reported from the event, including the number of times they stopped to charge, 
the complete time to slow down and set up the charger, and were there any times they had to wait for a charge station to be available? What speed did they travel at? And what's the distance they had to travel from their standard route to get to a charging station? Car companies have been a bit quiet with Super Bowl ads in the last few COVID-affected years, but in 2022, BMW will pull out the big guns. Their one-off spot, which will air during the third commercial break of the first quarter of the game, features Arnold Schwarzenegger, an Academy Award nominee, Salma Hayek, you know. It was directed by two-time Academy Award-nominated director Brian Buckley. Schwarzenegger stars as Zeus, the Greek god of lightning, and Hayek Pino plays his wife, the goddess Hera, as they retire from Mount Olympus to a quiet life in Palm Springs, California. However, the monotony of retirement quickly weighs on Zeus, who becomes frustrated by his struggles with earthly electronics and his nagging mortal neighbour's constant requests to charge their electric golf carts and hedge trimmers. Meanwhile, Hera, in an effort to bring some excitement back into Zeus's life, gives him an all-electric BMW iX, which quickly helps reignite her husband's electric mojo. The spot closes with the happy couple rocketing down the road to Eddie Grant's Electric Avenue, while Zeus uses his electric power to change the traffic lights to green. In 2021, one 30-second commercial spot costs the equivalent of 7.8 million Australian dollars just to get it played, not including any costs to actually make it. And that has been the news. In a recent major speech, the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, spoke of the need to shift the emphasis away from just building big projects and increase our consideration of the power and efficiencies in fostering local communities and local activities. More active transport, shorter trips and ready access for people who might not be able to afford individual car-based transport. Not in every case, but with more understanding and encouragement than we have given this in the past. You're listening to Overdrive. Professor David Hensher is one of, if not the most quoted academic in Australia of any profession. He also is the founder of the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at the University of Sydney. He's had a long and practical involvement in transport issues, and he joins us on the line now. Good day, David. Morning, David. You have cautioned recently in a video that you put out, a panel discussion about modelling in transport, you cautioned about using the word project. What did you mean by that? I think the word project is synonymous with a big piece of infrastructure, whereas a lot of the benefits that society can get from improved transportation do not require us to necessarily build anything, but to improve service levels and connectedness of what we've already got. So that's what I mean. And the risk is that the word project uh, also conjures up, especially with politicians, the opportunity to have something big that they can then cut a ribbon to open. Um, I often joke that, can you imagine a a politician cutting a ribbon to open a road pricing scheme? Uh, I guess that epitomises the point. It's not only to open it, it's to announce it five times too, I think. Yes, indeed. It's it's a hot potato, that, and that's the one that on a couple of occasions with politicians who are no longer there have said to me, Hensha, wash your mouth out. (laughs) 
The Premier, Dominic Perrottet, has uh, spoken recently at the Bradfield Lecture, which is a nice reflection on transport. He said, livability also means shifting our focus from the mega projects to the local projects, changing the emphasis from the train line to the destination. Is that reflecting what you've been saying for a long time? Very much so, David. In fact, I'm also delighted to give some credit this week to Rob Stokes, the Minister of Infrastructure, Cities and Active Transport, who's said that we need to invest much more heavily in active transportation, which, of course, is walking and cycleways. And this is becoming far more important with um, COVID-19 unintended positive consequences, i.e. working from home, where investment in improving the suburban context is going to be much more important than necessarily investing in the long haul uh, transportation. And I say in Sydney, we've got plenty of the long haul stuff anyway. We need to improve accessibility uh, out and about and around uh, the suburbs. In essence, we've been doing that for a long time. It's just that it's never, it's not part of our image. We constantly talk about the trip to the city centre when that's really a small part, quite a small part of the whole transport tasks that we have. Now, when they propose and are now building the very super expensive second railway crossing of the Sydney Harbour, you gave a parallel of how else that money could have been spent in a broader sense across the Sydney region. What was that? I was actually talking about the original Northwest Metro, um, which was mooted at 13 billion, although I note today they claim that it it cost uh, 7.8 billion that came in at 6 billion. So I'm not quite sure where those numbers come from. But having said all that, the point I wanted to make, and it came up in a parliamentary inquiry in, in the federal government where I was asked to comment on um, how best to improve public transport. And I made the comment that if you take that as an example and ask yourself for that 13 billion, as it was suggested back in those days, that you spent that on improving your bus services. And when you do the calculation, it turned out that for the whole of the Sydney metropolitan area, you could quadruple the amount of bus capacity in terms of frequency, et cetera. And if that didn't actually significantly improve the switch to public transport, then I'm not really convinced that building a 13 billion billion single corridor metro would make any difference. As nice as it is, I use it, nice and shiny, very comfortable, but it's not really making a big dent, certainly pre-COVID, it's hard to judge at the moment, on the use of the car. Uh, What was fascinating about that is that Bob Carr, the previous Premier of New South Wales, and then later the Foreign um, Minister for Australia, he immediately got onto his blog, being a big blogger, and told the world that this is a great idea that Henshaw has come come up with and that um, we should take this seriously. Well, the Greens in the front row were were aghast. How dare you consider improving uh, public transport on the roads only to create congestion? And my response to that is, well, if you can't get uh, at least 5 or 6% of people out of their cars by quadrupling the bus frequency everywhere, which is a system-wide benefit, not a not a corridor benefit, then uh, then then um, I'd be extremely surprised, and that's enough to reduce congestion down to school holiday levels. It's an example, isn't it, that uh, you mentioned earlier that some of the big projects are very 
linear in one direction. They're a gold-plated solution, but for a very narrow transport task. They might carry a, a, a fair, fair few people, but your proposals are providing perhaps less huge capacity, but capacity across much larger areas and in much more varied trips. I think the issue, David, is to look at the system as a whole. And even very large projects contribute to the system as a whole through their network benefits. And I guess what we need to do from time to time is take stock before we say we just want to build another large piece of infrastructure, be it a road or or a railway, for example, to say to what extent would we actually improve um, on the major goals that matter, like uh, improved accessibility, reduced social exclusion, improved well-being, and of course these days reduced emissions, um, by thinking about how we can connect all these large bits together with a very efficient, relatively lower cost public transport solution that will actually provide more efficient opportunities for door-to-door travel. And that's ultimately we have to link all this stuff back to the high-level goals. And I, it's sad to say that despite all the strategic talk by government about the high-level goals, when you, when you drill down to specific ways in which they spend the money, there's a bit of a disconnect between that and achieving those goals because we are myopic about what we want to build. Uh, I call this um, uh, emotional ideology or blind commitment. Because buses already carry a lot of people. They carry more people than trains, actually. They are the major form of public transport. And what's interesting, I often say, when people criticise improvements in the road network, that actually roads roads are a very important mechanism for moving people by public transport. Where, where we fail, and I think we've done a rather poor job in, in Sydney and we've missed opportunities, especially on the toll roads, is to insist on dedicated lanes for bus rapid transit. In that way, you can get a, uh, a an efficient movement of people on public transport, which is essentially mimicking the perceptions about, you know, trains are sexy and buses are boring, when all all the only difference between the two of them really in the main is to do with the track that they operate on. One happens to be rubber tied on road and the other happens to be steel on track. There are some other perceptions and commonly used expressions that we have to revisit and change. Mike Day is a partner at the urban planning and design practice Hatch Roberts Day. He has recently been outspoken about the strategic needs we must embrace to achieve sustainable and customer-focused communities. He joins us on the line now. G'day, Mike. Yeah, good morning, David. Pleasure to be with you. Do we have to clear in our head that discussion on transport needs are focused really on longer commuter-type trips uh, with an emphasis on the CBD. How are planners thinking about the real size of CBDs and their relevance? Are we being more serious, more more formally serious about local trips? I think we have to be, David, because what the pandemic has done has made us reassess the whole downtown experience. Now, for a start... CBD is the acronym for Central Business District. Now, that in itself is an anomaly. It's an anachronism. We need to sort of change that nomenclature. Most other countries around the world use the term downtown or city centre, and really that's the essence. I think it is. It's a combination of uses downtown. The problem that the planning profession has had over the last 100 years is that we have been fixated with these single uses. And if you 
if you and it's basically a monoculture and there's no ecosystem that ex, that survives as a monoculture so if you're just talking about it as a central business district um then it really it 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 isn't we need to sort of change that term. We need to think of a more appropriate term and we need to foster, you know, more people living downtown. And a number of our cities have done that. You know, Melbourne transformed by, with its postcode 3030 to, to you know, to focus on people living downtown as well as working. And you look at the cultural events, the cultural centres, the events and the, um, you know, the, the curation of some of these activities that are happening downtown. They're the things that I think we need to encourage. And look, not everyone's going to go back to the city five days a week. And I think we're seeing that as it's so much press just even the last couple of months now because we're going into year three of, you know, the pandemic and um, people have just got into the habit of not just working at home but living working close to home. So the development industry is starting to shape these new um, these commercial premises that are in the within the community hub so people can walk and cycle down to these community centres and that have got business centres there. They don't have to sort of commute back to the city. And unfortunately, we hear stories, particularly in the growth areas around the metropolitan areas in Australia, where people are commuting two and three hours a day. And it's just totally debilitating, not only on the individual, but the family, because we're sort of, you know, it's forcing families apart, uh, people that are having to, you know, commute back into the, the central business district, um, and particularly those that haven't got access to transit and they can't get on the train. Uh, they're sitting in the car. Uh, it's a very, very dispiriting experience, and it's leading to a lot of social ills. Local trips really have been part of uh, the community since time immemorial. Uh, is it just that we haven't given them the depth of consideration they deserve? And given changes like COVID and working from home for perhaps some of the time, is it timely that perhaps we catch up on giving them that, that depth of consideration and then funding their support? Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Rather than catch up, I'd say um, uh, resurrect or uh, return to some of those. We, <clears throat> we refer to the timeless principles, the timeless planning principles, as you say, that, you know, from time memorial, we the daily needs were within walking distance. And, you know, it is it should be the privilege and the, and the preferred mode. Walking should be the privilege and the preferred mode. So, Pedestrian pathways and cycle pathways should have priority um, over vehicular movement, right? And so if we do return, and it's almost like the planning profession has had, had amnesia. We've sort of forgotten a lot of these fundamentals that, as you said, have sort of, you know, have stood us in good stead. And look, if you look at the, the new communities, the Garden City movement, the 1920s, Welland Garden City, Lechworth, um, Hampstead Garden Suburb, Colonel Light Garden Suburb in um in Adelaide, and look at all the cherished, timeless inner neighbourhoods of Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, you know, they're transit-based, they've got trains, trams um, or buses, and they're compact, connected, mixed-use and walkable. So, you know, you've got the townhouses, you've got, you know, stately homes, you've got, you know, apartments that are um, interspersed amongst that urban fabric, and it makes for a more compact community. And as Professor George Sedden always used to say, it's the lack of intimacy um, in the suburban setting that a lot of migrants that come to Australia from um, Europe and elsewhere, um, it's the reason they gravitate to the city because of that intimacy and that, that compactness and that you know convivial sort of nature of these urban settings. You're listening to Overdrive. Kirsty Kelly had a career as a planner and then became the CEO of the Planning Institute of Australia. She's now the CEO of the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management. 
She understands that we are in a different environment where professionals do not have the assumed cultural authority they once did. Yes, absolutely. And look, it's a really, it's really challenging. Um, you know, if you think about this at an individual professional level, particularly people that that trained some time ago. You know, probably now a few decades ago, as an individual professional, if you had a profession like an engineer or a planner, you were the expert, and you knew you had your body of knowledge, and you were you were the expert authority on that topic. The way that things have changed, that's not how generally society is accepting of experts anymore. The answer is not for professionals to shout their opinions more loudly. I began a discussion with cycling advocate Fiona Campbell about how we have moved away from the professional having the answer that other people just have to accept. There's an expression in transport and planning that build it and they will come. I don't like the expression because it has not always worked. And if people do come, it might be out of desperation rather than design of the best solutions. And it is based on the idea that we have exclusive rights to knowing what you need. Uh, Then we see the way to getting people to embrace that is often used as running a marketing campaign. Nonetheless, government has an important role to facilitate transport options, including, where necessary, new infrastructure. That is good for the whole community, but people don't like to be told. Now, Sydney Council is advertising for a behavioural change project coordinator. This may sound manipulative, but I think it is anything but. I know Fiona Campbell, the Manager of Cycling Strategy at City of Sydney, who has initiated this position. I respect her approach as being one of engagement, not strident fundamentalism. She joins us on the line now. Fiona, thanks for your time. No worries. Nice to be here, David. Thank you. Um, yes, I think you're spot on. It's it's very important to understand what it is that people need. Um, so we know with cycling from the Transport for New South Wales customer research that they did a few years ago, that 70% of people who live in Greater Sydney would like to ride a bike or ride more, and that's from a few years ago, so it's probably even higher now since COVID. Um, And we know that the main barrier is people feeling that they don't have safe infrastructure to ride on. But that's not the only barrier. So it's important when we build infrastructure to also speak to people and find out, like, what are the other barriers? You know, maybe they don't have a bike. Maybe they haven't ridden their bike since they were a kid and, you know, they don't have the skills. Or maybe they have the skills but they don't have the confidence. Maybe they don't know where the routes are or where that will take them. Will it connect all the way through to where they're going? Or are there other social and cultural factors that need to be addressed? So um, it's very much about supporting people to ride. Mm, support is a lovely word because it's not make. Exactly. It's it, it's not a case of, hang on, I know what's good for you, do it, which is often, perhaps unfairly, but often seen as being the motivation or the, the approach behind these things. Yeah, so our cycling strategy that was done in 2018 um, has four priority areas, and the first priority is connecting the bike network because that is a sort of... An essential without that it's difficult to do anything else and the second one is supporting people to ride and and this role is their responsibility is everything that's in our strategy under that priority area of supporting people to ride it's not a new role it's something that we've had since 2010 um, and 
the behaviour change is mostly about supporting people to ride. There are a couple of other aspects. Um, we also want to encourage good, courteous, considerate behaviour by people when they're walking or riding on shared paths. We want to make sure that people know to slow down, give people who are walking plenty of space, ring their bell early so people have time to react and know that they're coming, that sort of thing as well. Since 2010, uh, what's been some of the feedback from some of the people that you've you know, engaged with? Really good feedback. Um, the people who have, for example, done our cycling courses, we, we get letters sometimes every week from people who've done the cycling course and say, you know, I, I haven't ridden my bike since I was very young um, and I never thought that I would ride my bike in the city but now that I've done the cycling course I've started riding to work every day and you know don't have to drive so much anymore and um, you know really happy through to um, you know maybe someone who's unhappy about the way that people are riding through um, a shared path maybe in a park maybe along a glebe foreshore um, where they complain about the the speed or behavior of people riding and so we'll go and do some share the path education sessions on that location, we'll talk to riders. Um, we use free tune-ups, free bike tune-ups as a way of getting people to stop and wait around while they wait for their tune-ups so that we can have a good conversation with them about um, why it's important to display considerate behaviour. Our chat with Kirsty adds more to this. The devil is often in the detail, though, in communicating that. Narrower streets and urban areas might create a sense of community, but they might stop garbage trucks. And that's often used as a weapon to stop things happening or to oppose stridently. Is, is there a need for us to evolve into, well, if that's an issue, how do we overcome it? Yeah, so I think um, that has certainly been, a, and I experienced some of those issues back when I was a, uh, working in local government as a planner and uh, then in planning consultancy, working on, on some design projects and dealing with, um, you know, various standards and guidelines um, from a, a traffic engineering perspective that were um, perhaps being a barrier to dealing with more active transport issues and trying to get um, you know, more vibrant local communities um, rather than designing everything for the, um, for the rubbish trucks and, uh, and what have you. So I think part of this is greater collaboration between disciplines, um, so a more multidisciplinary approach, which is something, you know, this isn't new, everyone's been advocating for this for a long time, but how we work together um, to a more, a more common goal and, and I guess what I'm starting to see more of coming through and again this is not new because it, these issues have been around for a long time but uh, certainly a stronger focus on issues around climate change and sustainability are starting to really push people to think more about how we need to design our, our urban areas differently um, that we need to try to reduce the um, the private car use and encourage active travel and, and certainly even you know COVID has made some changes there in terms of the way that people are engaging within their communities, walking and cycling more locally. Um, and they're then noticing that perhaps their, um, you know, their streets and suburbs aren't um, as friendly for, for people to walk and cycle down as safe or they're not as comfortable. And then from that, even the climate change perspective in terms of, um, you know, heat in urban areas that if we don't have our, our streets and cities designed to um, 
be more accommodating of people walking in them and and dealing with some of those heat issues, shade and positioning of buildings and and other comfort things that people require. And and thinking about this from people of of all ages and abilities. So that's you know one of the other areas that I'm I'm really enjoying seeing coming through more strongly in AITPM is thinking about more accessible and inclusive planning and that that we're not um, designing we shouldn't be designing our cities and our, our streets and transport networks and systems for one type of person. We have people with all sorts of abilities and we need to accommodate that. All of our participants have further comments and ideas on issues such as the need for good data, how we need to encourage not just lecture people, where computer modelling should go in the future, what are some of the barriers to progress, including government funding structures, and what have been the lessons we have learnt from COVID. We will put each of the full interviews onto our website and we will use more of their quotes in the future. You're listening to Overdrive. Mental health is an issue for many people and Nissan, along with other sponsors and a brave soul, Lachlan Spark, are running to do something about it. Lachlan is setting off to prove that nothing is impossible. A self-described avid runner, mental health advocate and anything but elite athlete, Lachlan's epic 5,000km journey, proudly sponsored by Nissan Australia, will see him travel from Hobart to Cairns while smashing the world record for consecutive half marathons. While many of us would balk at the idea of 222 back-to-back half marathons, Lachlan is setting out to raise a million dollars for Are You OK and Heart On My Sleeve, an admirable reason to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Beyond raising these funds, he is also hoping to give hope to those currently battling mental health issues. Joining Lachlan along the East Coast is his long-term partner, Courtley Weinbergen, and their golden retriever, Fab. They will be following Lockie in a Nissan Navara in their caravan equipped with everything they could need to support his daily half marathons. Nissan is joined by Booper, Therabody, Zipco and Big Four as sponsors. This is the Motoring Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. Last week, I was driving electric cars ideal for the city. This week, I'm driving two large four-wheel-drive family wagons that are better suited for outback touring or towing, the Nissan Patrol and Toyota Land Cruiser. Both are true dual-range four-wheel drives. Both will take a large family in comfort. Both will tow a caravan or boat with ease. The Nissan has a big old-school 5.6-litre V8 petrol engine that is thirsty. The Land Cruiser, a newer 3.3-litre V6 turbo diesel engine that is a little more fugal on fuel. Neither are fun to park in the local shopping centre car park, but both are great outback. The Nissan is in need of a refreshed interior design. The Land Cruiser is brand new and while fresh, it could have gone further. The big difference is price. The Nissan Patrol is priced from around 82000 to 95000 The 300 Series Land Cruiser from just under 90000 to a little under 139000 All are plus the usual costs. The Nissan is outstanding value given that you would need to add around 20000 to match the level of features in a Land Cruiser. This is Motoring Minute. I'm Brianna Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Professor Hencher, Mike Day, Fiona Campbell, Kirsty Kelly, The Frasers and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information and links to past programs and the socials, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. 
Thanks for listening. 